Russia, 1932. J.W. Paris was a man of means on a constant search for fortune. Paris was a diamond trader, and his travels had taken him to Russia. There, a sullen gem merchant presented him with a remarkable specimen, a diamond the color of night called the Eye of Brahma. The widow jeweler spun a tale of greed, mysticism, and tragedy. The gemstone had originally come from a temple in Pondicherry, still under British rule. At the end of the 1880s, a traveling Franciscan monk had been taken to the temple and shown an idol of the Hindu creator god Brahma. Set into one of the god's eyes was the black diamond. Irresistibly drawn to the relic, the monk cast aside all holy pretense and plucked the diamond from the idol, right under the noses of the temple priests. When they discovered the blasphemous crime, they laid a curse on the diamond, so that whomever possessed it would meet an untimely end. Or so they say. At first, a hardened New Yorker such as Mr. Paris didn't believe in such superstitious nonsense, though the diamond alone was appealing enough. But the jeweler mournfully explained that the Eye of Brahma had come into his possession by way of inheritance. It had been left to him by his wife, a distant heir of the Romanov royal family. The lady Nadia Orlov had managed to flee to Rome during the 1917 Russian Revolution, along with a companion, a fellow royal named Leonila, who had in her possession this mysterious stone. Not long after arriving in Rome, Leonila took her life by jumping from the rooftop of a tall building. Nadia inherited the stone, but it was not long after when she too took her life in a similar fashion. Her husband dubbed the gem the Black Orlov in his late wife's honor, but he only wished to get rid of the twice-damned stone, which he knew was truly cursed. J.W. Paris didn't believe in curses, but he did believe in money, so he gladly purchased the stone and took the next boat to New York City in hopes of selling it to one of the Manhattan upper crust. And, with great luck, he managed to sell the Black Orlov diamond within his first week of arrival. Then, one week later, J.W. Paris climbed to the top of a skyscraper and threw himself over the edge. It was a shocking death as any. What had driven this businessman in his prime to do such a thing? At the undertaking of Paris's estate, two mysterious letters, written in haste, were uncovered, one addressed to his wife and the other to a jeweler, perhaps a certain Russian jeweler. The contents of those letters has never been revealed. The Black Orlov is not the only precious gem rumored to cause misfortune and tragedy. Throughout history, multiple jewels, owned and traded by the elite, have been blamed for the downfall of some of the world's most powerful figures. Was it mere greed that ended the dynasties of these kings, queens, and socialites the world over? Or did the diamonds they own come with a deadly price tag?
Jean-Baptiste Tavignier had a wanderlust. He also had plenty of cash. The son of persecuted Flemish Huguenots, Tavignier had been raised on tales of foreign lands, and he couldn't keep his feet in one place for too long before the whims of adventure, and of course money, called him away to another foreign shore. Experienced in navigation as well as language, Tavernier also had an eye for luxuries, especially jewels. He was soon lauded by kings all over Europe as a top gemstone merchant, and since cozying up to royals tends to pay handsomely for one's travels, Tavernier's journey took him further than he could have possibly anticipated. In 1666, a most unfortunate year in Christian numerology, Jean-Baptiste came into possession of an uncut diamond of remarkable size. Tavignier had landed in India, already in the early grips of colonization. Indian mines produced diamonds, many of them uniquely colored. At this point in time, Tavignier's newly acquired and yet unnamed diamond was roughly triangular in shape and 112 carats strong. And that's a lot of carrots. History is unclear on how Tavernier acquired the stone, though it was likely through dubious means, such as theft. In the myths surrounding the Hope Diamond, it's often said that the gem served as the eye on an idol of Sita, Hindu goddess of fortune. But its approximate origins remain something of a tantalizing mystery. In any case, French King Louis XIV also known as the Sun King, was quite smitten with the gem and paid Tavignier both a delicious sum as well as a noble title. It is said that King Louis handed the massive gem over to his royal jeweler and said, make me a piece to remember. In hindsight, a regrettable statement. In two years' time, gemsmith Jean Biteau delivered with a beautifully cut pendant, the diamond shining like the sun, from which Louis XIV took his noble moniker. The impressive stone was henceforth known as the Blue Diamond of the Crown of France, or more colloquially, the French Blue, for its gray-blue elegant color. And though there's no definitive metric for pinpointing when exactly a curse truly begins, we do know that King Louis XIV, for all of his absolute rule, met a rather painful decline. While his health wasn't the best to begin with, the year he began wearing the French blue was the same year he was diagnosed with an inflammatory disease, which then gave way to boils, vertigo, tooth abscesses, and every monarch's favorite illness, gout. He eventually succumbed to these illnesses, though to be fair, he was 76, still longer lived than most people in his time. The French blue was passed on to his successors, though they didn't display it with the same fervor. Even so, King Louis XV died of a suddenly acquired case of smallpox, and King Louis XVI died of a suddenly acquired case of having his head cut off during the French Revolution. It was during this tumultuous period that the royal storehouse and its treasures were looted, and the French blue along with them. At this point, what happened to the French blue isn't exactly known, but a roughly cut gem that matched its description appeared again in the possession of a London jeweler in 1812. Some historians believe the gem was used to bribe one of Napoleon's British military supporters, Duke Carl Wilhelm of Brunswick, who feared the influence of the French revolt on the British monarchy. Other historians believe they know the exact identity behind one of the individuals from the so-called angry mob of looters. Cade Guillot 
who escaped to London by way of Le Havre with a stockpile of royal gems in tow. In order to sell the French blue for a profit, the stone was cut to ensure its identity would remain a secret and not draw suspicion from royal authorities. Regardless, Guillot ended up penniless in a debtor's prison. Though the stone was sighted on market in London circa 1812, other theories say that Carl Brunswick's daughter, Caroline, Queen Consort of King George IV, gave the king the stone herself as a wedding present. This was perhaps not the wisest of choices, as the marriage between the King of England and Caroline of Brunswick was famously disastrous, with the king drumming up a list of false accusations against the queen consort in order to divorce her. Caroline was loved by the people, and her role as victim only served to influence the populace, who saw King George as a lecher and a bully. Nevertheless, he successfully barred her from her own coronation as queen. Caroline immediately fell ill and died three weeks later. Karmaically, George IV didn't fare too well either, as he succumbed to the debilitation of his excesses and met a bedridden death in 1830, British history forever regarding him with scorn. He also died steeped in an embarrassing amount of debt, and so his mistress Elizabeth Conningham had to liquidate his assets in secret to keep the royal family's finances in the black. One of these assets, it is now widely believed, was the mutilated French blue. Officially, the diamond appeared in the 1839 gem catalog of the merchant Henry Philip Hope, with a price tag of $90,000. The diamond was not sold, but was retained by the Hope family lineage until descendant Francis Hope fell into bankruptcy, and, as was the case with the estate of George IV, needed to sell off the gem now known as the Hope Diamond. The diamond was sold to a New York and London-based diamond dealer for the adjusted sum of $7.5 million. From here on out, the hope was passed along from boutique to boutique as it began to take on a sinister reputation. Whomever held the hope diamond in their catalog for too long soon fell into misfortune, with one jeweler referring to it as the voodoo diamond. In 1909, it was acquired by the famous gem baron Pierre C. Cartier of the Cartier Diamond Fortune, who was determined to break the curse and, you know, finally sell the damn thing. He succeeded by selling the gem to one of his best customers, a wealthy Washington, D.C. mining heiress by the name of Evelyn Walsh McLean, though not before a fair bit of push and pull. McLean had already purchased the famous pear-shaped Star of the East Diamond from Cartier, and Cartier did not shy away from the Hope Diamond's cursed history. In fact, he used it as a selling point. He knew his customers well, and McLean once boasted that unlucky objects often turned out to bring her good luck instead. The eccentric and wealthy McLean began to throw lavish parties where she would hide the diamond for her guests to find which often gave her security detail a headache, trying to keep the thing from being stolen. Eight years into ownership, it seemed like the curse of the Hope Diamond was nothing more than a marketing tactic after all. Then, McLean's nine-year-old son, Vincent, was struck and killed in an automobile accident, the same fate that had befallen Evelyn's 17-year-old brother, also named Vincent, some years prior. 
Evelyn McLean's husband, Edward, became a raging alcoholic and left his wife for another woman, tanking the family fortune and dying of brain atrophy in an asylum. McLean's daughter, also named Evelyn, died at age 24 of a sleeping pill overdose. Elsewhere, the fortunes of Evelyn's children waned or their marriages fell apart. Though she would remarry, Evelyn Walsh McLean died of pneumonia at 60 years old. As was the pattern with the Hope Diamond, its owners were now bankrupt, and the stone had to be sold off, ensuring that it would continue to propagate its deadly curse. But American jeweler Harry Winston was too pragmatic to believe in such folly, and purchased both the Hope Diamond and the Star of the East, deciding that a little notoriety was very good for business. He took the infamous gem on the road, where it appeared on a 1950s game show called The Name's the Same, where a panelist of contestants correctly guessed the famous namesake of the show's mystery guest, a young girl named Hope Diamond. Winston eventually donated the stone to the Smithsonian Museum, though he never claimed any bad luck due to a curse. The Hope Diamond remains the most viewed object in the Smithsonian's collection, its official owner, technically speaking, the United States of America. Feel free to interpret that information as you will. As for the Star of the East, Winston stole it to the King of Egypt in 1952, but after he was overthrown, it was returned to Winston and displayed briefly at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. However, the stone vanished into the annals of time, and its current whereabouts are unknown. In addition to the fates that befell many of its owners, the Hope Diamond's dark history is also attributed to its unusual properties. The diamond glows red under UV light, and it retains this eerie red glow long after the light is taken off of it. Supposedly, the first victim of the curse was none other than Jean-Baptiste Tavignet, who was torn apart by wild dogs while traveling in Constantinople. But this is only a fabrication. Tavernier actually died at a very reasonable 84 years old while telling stories of his travels on his deathbed in Moscow, Russia. And during the periods when the Hope Diamond was in the possession of various diamond traders, none but the fellow who called it the Voodoo or Hoodoo Diamond met any real profit losses. The unlucky gentleman in question was just a bad businessman. Still, there are many legends and stories concerning the grisly fates that supposedly fell owners of the Hope. Many I have chosen to omit from the story because I don't believe reading out lists makes for good podcasting. However, I would encourage anybody to check out the very helpful, frankly hilarious, section under the Hope Diamond's Wikipedia entry titled Owners and Their Fates. It's a play-by-play that lists whether or not each historical owner had bad things happen to them or not. Now, no pun intended, but the hope is not lost, though by some accounts it should have been. There is, however, another famous diamond that once caught Jean-Baptiste Tavignet's eye, though it never entered his collection. Its past is indeed bloody, though perhaps not as bloody as its blue cousin, and unlike the hope, we really have no idea what became of the Florentine diamond. 
With the beautiful cut and startling shade of yellow, the Florentine was a rarity among rarities. As is the case with many of the gems in this story, history isn't quite sure where it came from, but we know that it first appeared in the treasury of Charles the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, in 1477. The Duke had a habit of wearing his jewels into battle, but I get it, it's called accessorizing. Such was the case on January the 5th, 1477, when the Duke led the charge against the Swiss. And yeah, it's weird thinking about Switzerland going to war nowadays, but apparently they did that at one point in time. Go figure. The Duke was not victorious, and he died on the battlefield. A scavenger looking to pilfer off the corpses of the dead came by not long after and discovered the jewel. But thinking it was nothing more than colored glass, he hawked it to merchant Bartholomew May for two francs or a single florin, depending on the story. May sold it in Genoa, and then it ended up in the pockets of Ludovico Sforza, Duke of Milan and famed patron of Leonardo da Vinci. Yes, this was the guy who actually commissioned the Last Supper. The Duke was well-loved by his people, and with the assistance of his wife Patricia, helped to make Milan an epicenter of arts and philosophy, strengthening it as one of the Italian kingdoms. And I emphasize kingdoms because Italy as a unified nation is actually a relatively recent phenomenon, and for centuries its most celebrated cities, such as Florence and Venice, functioned as rival city-states. In fact, it was this rivalry that got Ludovico in trouble. The Duke of Milan was brilliant when it came to funding the arts, but really bad when it came to military strategy. A spate of bad decisions, the least of which was trusting the French, resulted in not only his city's downfall, but the kickoff to the Italian wars. Luck was not on Ludovico Sforza's side. By the time he had doomed Milan, his wife had died from illness, and the Duke himself was captured and imprisoned. His legacy following his death was dragged through the mud and slandered by nationalists as a man who opened up Italy to invasion. It's only recently that historians were able to pull apart the slander and paint a more nuanced portrayal of the doomed Ludovico Sforza. In the midst of the tumult of Milan, the diamond was acquired by one of the most powerful families of the common era, the Medicis. A wealthy banking and mercantile family spanning the hundreds of years of Italian history, the Medicis patroned some of the greatest artists of the Western world and produced several popes. It was no wonder then that they would want to acquire a diamond of such prestige. Because the Medicis ruled over Florence, and they now held the famous rock, the yellow diamond became known as the Florentine. Jean-Baptiste Tavernier was invited into the court of Ferdinando Medici II in 1657, and there he bore witness to the magnificent gem. It's because of Tavignet's meticulous sketches and observations that we know the detailed facets on the stone today. The Medicis outlived many rulers and empires, but their time would eventually come, though it's hard to blame this one on a curse. Due to a combination of courtly intrigue, declining Florentine population, shifting political alignments, a lack of heirs, and simply falling out of favor, the main Medici line ended with Anna Maria Luisa Medici. Austria annexed Florence, and Tuscany was now part of the conglomerate known as the Holy Roman Empire. Everything about the Holy Roman Empire is confusing, so we'll just move on to the next part. 
The Florentine diamond moved from the Medici line to the last ruler of the Habsburg dynasty, Maria Theresa. In addition to being one of the toughest broads to wield influence over the empire, she was also the mother of Marie Antoinette. Everything comes full circle, right? For whatever reason, Maria Theresa decided not to wear the Florentine around, but sent it off to Hofburg Palace in Vienna as part of the collection of the Habsburg crown jewels. And there, the Florentine remained for decades, while monarchies collapsed and empires fell. It was known as the star prize of the collection, and it was talked about the world over. Unfortunately, while Austria managed to outlive many of Europe's monarchies, the domino effect that begot World War I also spelled disaster for the Austrian nobility. Remember, it was the death of Archduke Franz Ferdinand that first lit the powder keg. Understandably, as the war drew to an end, most of the world was not pleased with the royal family, whose retaliation set the bloodshed into motion. Though Emperor Charles I of Austria tried to make amends, he would not cede sovereignty willingly, and was exiled, along with his family, to Switzerland and then later Portugal. The monarchy overthrown, a stubborn Charles I had his children smuggle out whatever treasures they could get their hands on, including the Florentine diamond. This was confirmed by the New York Times on February 7, 1922, citing Swiss correspondence. At the time it was spirited away to Switzerland, the Florentine diamond had been set into a hat pin. At the close of the war, a unified Italy demanded that the Florentine diamond and all treasures that once belonged to the Medicis be returned to their country of origin. But even if Austria was willing to acquiesce to this request, there was nothing they could do. Because, you see, the Florentine diamond never actually made it to its destination. There are many prevailing theories on what happened to the precious and or cursed gem. One good guess, the now broke Austrian royals in exile pawned the diamond on the sly. Another theory states that a loyal servant, seeing their masters stripped of their power and wealth, stole the diamond and fled to a country in South America, never to be seen again. Perhaps the most depressing and likely theory is that the Austrian nobility had the Florentine diamond cut into smaller stones to try and generate as much money as possible out of one rock. Some of these smaller diamonds were said to have ended up in the United States during the 1920s. A treasure like this is hard to track down, but that has not stopped an organization called Gem Sleuths, who've made a mission of hunting whatever remains of the Florentine. Since most diamonds are actually registered, and yellow diamonds are usually quite rare, the sleuths examined all known yellow diamonds over 70 carats, as the Florentine was listed at 137 at the time of its disappearance. They managed to hunt down one diamond that had been sold at an auction in 1981. Based on their research, the gem sleuths proposed that this candidate may have very well been part of the Florentine. However, since the buyer was anonymous, the trail sadly went cold. It's likely that anybody who could authentically prove their yellow diamond was part of the Florentine, and thereby increase the value of the stone, would have come forward by now. Even so, next time you get a chance, take a look at your grandmother's wedding ring. You never know.
In Persian, the Koh-i-Noor diamond translates to the Mountain of Light. And like many of the sinister diamonds featured in this story, it too was said to have been taken from the eye of a Hindu idol. The stone was once owned by Emperor Shah Jahan, who commissioned the famous Taj Mahal, until he was betrayed and overthrown by his own son. A botched gem cutting reduced the Koh-i-Noor from an impressive 800 carats down to 186. It was passed around by various leaders of the Punjab, though it did not stay with them for too long because they usually met violent depositions. Somewhere along the way, it was said that the jewel was cursed, with a caveat that it could be worn with immunity, but only by God or woman. When the Victorian Empire annexed the Punjab, it was sent along to England in 1849. But the ship transporting it suffered a mysterious outbreak of cholera, and the diamond nearly doomed the vessel entirely, until its few remaining crew arrived at port. Even after all that, Queen Victoria was said to have been dissatisfied with the gemstone. However, it was eventually placed into the crown owned by current ruling English monarch Queen Elizabeth II. And, true to legend, no harm has befallen any female royal who has worn the Koh-i-Noor. The government of India has repeatedly called for its return, but all requests have been denied by Great Britain. And all of this political intrigue and high-stakes bartering may point to a much more depressing reality than any cursed jewel. The link between the owners of the Black Orlov, the Hope Diamond, and the Florentine is that these gems were coveted by powerful people who didn't always have their minds on anything other than acquiring more money and power. That greed may have blinded them to betrayals brewing within their own courts, to the unavoidable politics demanding their attention, or the suffering of their own people. There is also the fact that many of the stories behind the stones were entirely fabricated. I mean, how many Hindu idols are now missing their eyes? Come on. But that's the thing. These are still good stories, and they also come with a bit of a humble warning that the most valuable objects don't always bring happiness. And these murky origins are really what drive the narratives. While some facets of the truth are sometimes there, no pun intended, in the case of the Black Orlov, its origins are more myth than anything. Firstly, no Russian princesses were said to have survived after the death of Anastasia Romanov, though that's a conspiracy theory for another time. Nadia and Leonila likely never existed in the first place, and as for cursed businessman J.W. Paris, no historical record of him can be found. The legacy behind the Black Orlov may have been nothing more than the invention of jewelers trying to make a buck off the scandals surrounding the Hope Diamond. The Orlov was purchased in the 1950s by the real Charles F. Wilson, who had it cut and set into a brooch among 108 other diamonds. He was confident that the curse, if it did exist, had at last been broken for good. Though, perhaps not. In 2006, the Black Orlov came into the spotlight yet again, when an actress wore the infamous black diamond on the red carpet of the Academy Awards. That actress is Felicity Huffman, who as of this episode is currently serving a 14-day prison sentence for her participation in a college admissions scandal. Relic is written and narrated by me, Maxwell. 
If you like this episode and want to be an absolute gem, you can rate and review Relic in iTunes. We also have a Patreon that has exclusive episodes, including the pilot episodes to my Paranormal Mystery podcast from 2015, collaborations with other podcasters, and of course, Tales from the Reliquary, which looks at weirder lost treasures that can't fit a full episode. Connect with me on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod and email me at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. Next time, a Halloween treat in the form of a shorter tale. The American Civil War spawned many horrors, and supposedly a fair share of ghosts. As the war finally drew to an end, tales arose that the South had assembled surpluses of Confederate gold. Many of these hidden treasures are said to still exist throughout the American South, still fiercely guarded and haunted by their original owners. The adventure continues.